0: And if I won to, I'm flossing and lost in a state that's as big as hell. And I spot two bad girls in a turf sale. They said, what's up? and I said, what's up?
1: We're going to and I said, giddy up, you turn. What's up, Phoenix? What's up? What's up, Phoenix? What's up? Phoenix, what's up, Phoenix? Up, Just on it. it.
0: It's 105 in the shade, and I'm sippin' on a lemonade. Phoenix, Arizona puts the heat up on ya. I should warn ya, the girl's as fine as California. Speaking of Cali, check your Mac Daddy. He gots game, and he knocks names from Redding to the Valley. And I can pull him on a TJ border. I even knock Mr. G's daughter. And come on up to the 702, where it's legal to gamble. And is too? The kind of city I could run with. Las Vegas, Navidad. I love it. Back to the 206. Double up my grits. And see, down giving give it po fit. These like a plug supposed to. poster 348 Roadster What's up Atlanta, what's up
1: What's up Atlanta, what's up Atlanta, jump on it
0: So let's go calling up my homeboy daddy ray hey ray what's up with the girls in ga and ray got the situation handled we're gonna stack up six deep and ride to orlando to the 407 calling up magic mike we rose in about a level the gut getter got it good all night the next day i got a match to the 305 i get g like i'm only in miami you understand me i put it on my grandma and swing on up to the 813 around tampa I'm dialing up stephanie he got me polished like chrome, sitting on the throne. I'm all out now. I'm
1: going home. Ooh-oh. What's up, KC? What's up? What's up, KC? What's up? Kansas City? City. Jump on it. Jump on it. Jump on it. What's up, Cleveland? What's up? What's up? What's up, Cincinnati? What's up, Columbus? Jump on it. Jump on it. Jump on it. What's up, Little Rock? What's up? What's up, Little Rock? What's up, Little Rock? i mm-hmm.
2: gentlemen we're coming to the end of the maximum summer show here on wcbn fm ann arbor my name is dustin uh i'll be back again i mean honestly i'll be back again at 11 p.m tonight to uh play a bunch of uh punk and hardcore but then i'll also be back again next week at two uh with this same show on wednesdays anyway Living Writers is up next uh, Let's run down real quick What you've been hearing Behind me you're hearing uh, The Congos with Africanism Before this you heard Ace Freely With Back in the New York Groove Before that Shuggy Otis With Island Letter Before that Sir Mix-a-Lot With Jump On It Before that The B-52s By Request With Mesopotamia um, Before that anim- ugh, excuse me, Animal Collective With Kids on Holiday And before that Terry Riley And John K.O. With Ides of March and that's where we left off. Uh, sorry for the request; I didn't make it to uh, Hugh John Noble. If you're still listening, uh, you know, thanks for tuning in from another country. It's a lot more than a lot of my other friends have done for me lately. Just kidding; my other friends are buying me drinks left and right. But uh, you know, still, thank you. Uh, new jam sound good, uh, John Barsky. Uh, sorry that I couldn't find Summertime. I really did try. I think uh, there's a sickness at this radio station right now when you can't find DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince Summertime. What kind of radio station is this? Oh, listen, they're singing behind me. Um, anyway, I'm going to quit rambling. Uh, stay tuned. Listen to WCBN all day. Uh, enjoy a Long Island iced tea or a regular iced tea or uh, lemonade or combination of lemonade and iced tea or an American style lager or a hot dog or a tofu dog or...
1: 76 at the Houston summit. Give up the I'll the Put a line in your stride, a dent in your head,
3: and come on board the mothership. 500,000 kilowatts of peacock power. If you got faults, defects, or shortcomings, whatever part of your body it is, I want you to lay it on the radio the vibes flow through. The effect is what you get you improve your Do
4: it to you in 3
3: WCBN brings you another free night at the movies with Parliament Funkadelic in the concert film The Mothership Connection. Free at Arbor Brewing Company Wednesday, May 20th at 9pm. Brought
2: to you by your friends at WCBN-FM. Ann Arbor.
5: How y'all feel out there? Oh uh, yeah! Alright. All right. Check this out. One, two, three, in the place to be, as it is plain to see, he is DJ Run, and I am DMC. Funky Fresh for 1983. DJ Jam Master Jay, inside the place with all the bass. He needs to find a trace, and he came here tonight to get on your case. And we are the crush grooving, the body moving, the record making, and the record breaking. And it goes a little something like this. It goes a one, two, three, and here we go. Here we go. Here we go.
3: Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Colson Whitehead. Colson, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> well, it wasn't actually <laughs> me.
6: <laughs> well, the institution of the uh, of WCBN, yeah. right? Yes, yeah. yeah.
3: And, and do you find it much changed since your last visit
6: here? Well, you know, it seems to be more graffiti on the walls. Um, <laughs> and on the table. On the table, but it's still the same pleasant place I was three years ago.
3: We have new air ducts, so probably your lungs are, perhaps happier.
6: Yes. Yeah. Well, I think I was still smoking back then, so I was probably chain smoking a lot more. So yeah. So who's
3: to even? You can't. Yes, I have nothing to
6: judge it with. (laughs)
3: Right. So how's the not smoking going?
6: It's all right. You know, I mean, I I, I've gone for like a year, a year and a half before. So it's been like since the election on November second. I was like, if Obama wins, I'll quit smoking. And then he won. So that was disappointing, um, but, <laughs> on, I, but a <laughs> level, on a personal level, of
3: course. <laughs>
6: <laughs> but I haven't smoked since then. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, well Colson, before we congratulations, but um, before we go any further, I'm going to read your your short bio from the back of your book because you're here in town. You're visiting um, surely, Ann Arbor surely. with your latest novel, Sag mm-hmm. Harbor, and and this is the biography in the back. Colson Whitehead is the author of the novels The Intuitionist, a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award. John Henry Days, which won the Young Lions Fiction Award, the Anisfield-Wolf Book Award, and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and Apex Hides the Hurt, a New York Times notable book and winner of the Penn Oakland Award. He has also written The Colossus of New York, a book of essays about his hometown, a recipient of a Whiting Writer's Award and a MacArthur Fellowship. The genius, Grant, right? Uh, He lives in Brooklyn. Look at your big brain, Colson. Well, the thing is, you know, I, I sort of,
6: you know, <laughs> in the author's bio, I was always like sort of anxiety producing things. So like sometime you're like, oh, I'm just like going on about nice things that have happened. And then so you, you overcompensate by being like, Colson Whitehead exists in New York City. He's a writer. And so I go between like being super terse and not giving any information and then Giving too much information, but you know, so I don't know. So, but you know, the whole the whole what what's your author photo like, and that's always just a whole useless uh, time suck, unfortunately.
3: Yeah, dude. But maybe you have people who you trust that can help you with that, because sometimes we can be blind to, I don't know, these things, right? Well,
6: you know, with the with the bio, you know, and no said anything. With my author photo, definitely over the years, I've made some mistakes. Like my first one, <laughs> I have, like, uh, you know, I look really intense, and that's because. Uh, Don DeLillo's Don DeLillo's Underworld had just come out, and his author photo is like really, you know, it looks like he's gonna take a hatchet to somebody's face. And so I figured that was like what you should <laughs> look <the> like. That's the look. So <laughs> you should just get, have this sort of psychotic stare. So that's what I was going for. That's what I was going for with that one. And then this time, I figured uh, I had a friend who's photographer, and I got a professional picture done. And my publicist, the publicist at Doubleday, who'd never said anything about my photos, was like, Thank God. <laughs> so you know, that's a nice, you know, nice sort of photo we have now.
3: And I was looking at your website, Colson. Um is it is it Colson Whitehead. Yeah, it's counterintuitive,
6: but it's actually that's yeah, that's that's what it is.
3: And, and on it, you, you you kind of have these these great like moments. Where you're quite self-effacing in them, and you say that the one of the best pictures um, was in the New York Times recently, and you said it's from far away.
6: Yeah, it's a full body shot. You can't really see my face, and it's really a very really lovely, well done on the
3: docks. It's yeah. really it is nice composition. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, we're talking about all these visual things. So let's get back to radio radio matters and words and um and and fill in a little bit more of your biography. Um because you were like you mentioned you were here three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um but uh for but,
6: Apex signs of the hurt.
3: ah uh, yes. But um I wish I had seen those earlier author photos because I've seen the one of you eating a hamburger I think online. <laughs> but but I have missed the the, the man photo. It's there, it's there. It's, it's there. Okay. Uh, some more digging ahead then. Um but so, so you were born in
1: 1969.
3: Yes. <laughs> and sun shivers down your spine.
6: <laughs> uh, yeah, 69. It was a good year.
3: It was a very good year. But this book, Sag Harbor, um, which you're you're going on tour now um, for, um, it takes place in the 80s. The 80s are completely reveled in. And um, and it seems that it, you're drawing a lot from your own autobiography, um, Tapping in, perhaps at least with, like for example, the the there was a BB gun moment in the the novel. So this is all fiction. Mm-hmm. But then then in your own life story, there's a parallel moment where d- do you uh, have a BB gun, like yeah, BB fr- pellet in yeah, your? Right there. I uh, again, we need some video feed, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> I can vouch for it. I see it, but I hadn't noticed it before.
6: Right. I guess you know for many years I thought I would uh, set off alarms in like airports, <laughs> but that didn't happen. So basically, you know, the book is called Sag Harbor, and it's about some kids from New York City who go out to uh, this black part of the Hamptons called, um, called Azure Rest in the town of Sag Harbor. And they're from the city, and they, you know, run wild in the summer. Their parents only come out on weekends, and so they're left to their own devices. And
3: that's and, and that's normal then, too, for this time, because I almost found that hard to believe. that.
6: Yes. I mean, you know— uh, and, you know, and I, that was my experience. And so that's the jumping off point. And definitely I, you know, me and my brother, I was 15. He was 14. And we were just sort of out, left our own devices uh, in the middle of the week. Our friend Jay, a couple blocks over, was alone too. And there were, there were adults around. If, you know, if we got, had to go to the hospital or someone, you know, there are people around who could take us. Um, but it's not something that would happen now. So um, it seemed like a good place to start a, a novel. My previous books have been, start off from, I guess more intellectual propositions I wanted to explore, like problems I wanted to sort of get at, uh, but I, I, I'd avoided writing, using stuff in my personal life.
3: Well, well, how do you feel about the coming of age novels? Or is that something?
6: That... Well, I hated them growing up. Like I didn't like Holden Caulfield. Like I thought it was like a whiny, you know, something, something. And you know, if you <laughs> thank if like, you, like, and like, the FCC thanks you. <laughs> like if I went around. In my household, saying everybody's a phony, like my parents would say, and you know, it's like, yeah, we told you, you know, when well, you were two, that everyone's a phony. So I could never relate to catching a Rye. And when I realized I wanted to write about Seg Harbor and the summer of '85, I didn't want to inject like these the sort of fake melodrama where like the kids find a body and then like "Stand by Me" starts playing or like. Uh, there are two kids on a branch, and the, one kid shakes the branch. The other kid dies. And that's your other...
3: book in ten years from now, <laughs> when everything's.
6: Gonna... Yeah, so I didn't want to do like fake, you know, fake action like Jaws or whatever. So I wanted to try and elevate these small, mundane, personal moments to the stuff of fiction of of, of art. So first, crappy like how can I narrate the first crappy job, first kiss, um, a BB gun fight, and make it and make it transcend its quotidian or- origins and become, you know, a worthwhile story.
3: But but could that also be what's what's also important about it, because that there's a genuineness there that's a, a different type of depth?
6: Well, I, I think, you know, when people can relate to it, people relate to it because it is ordinary. There's not some sort of life-changing, transcendent uh, moment. It's really a sort of, you know, I think we're a collection of small moments that change us over time, and I wanted to sort of narrate that you know the main character and so
3: that was in your head colson when you when you like how did this project actually begin was it something that you just um because you went back to seg harbor and there was something about like that those memories or those things that like, you look at something but you see the layers behind it or like what what start what started um the project for you?
6: Well, yeah, I had gone out to South Harbor for a long time because I went to college and then it was like, too, you know, Hampton's too bougie. I don't want to be out there. You know, I'm a hipster. Uh, but then just started visiting my, my mother who moved out there full time and renting my aunt's place. It's just a nice, mellow place. And so I'd have friends out. And each time I would try to tell them like, that's so-and-so's house or that's the kid who used to beat me up. And then my sister beat him up. And then my, his mother beat up my mother. Like the, the stories just kept getting more and more extravagant. And I, and I realized that there was such a history of to the place and it hadn't been told people don't we know about this black community in the Hamptons and, uh, the fact that we were left on our own was sort of like a good proposition to move from. So, um, I wanted to write about it. And then I had to figure out how to structure it. And since there isn't this, you know, a strong linear plot, the idea is that the voice, you know, Benji's voice and Benji's perspective are enough of a provide enough narrative propulsion propulsion to pull you through.
3: I didn't. I, I asked the the publishers, but I wasn't able to get the books books in time. Like to have like more of a, a scope of your work, and you're right. I could have gone to the library. I you're too. unprepared. But that's okay.
6: <laughs> yeah. Life is I short. Look at all this. Paper. Yeah, yeah. You're very prepared. Yeah.
3: yeah thanks. Um, <laughs> uh, but. But, um, but this, but, but coming, so, so I read about you, mm-hmm, right. Yeah. In the prep of things, um, but not the actual uh, getting the sense of the words themselves. But, but when I
6: came the to the actual th- primary sources, Yes, your yes primary what, yeah, sources. Yeah. um, yeah, no, it's different. I mean, it just, it's, you know, um,
3: the project seemed vastly different, but it seems like something that almost in a weird way coming of age as a writer where you felt more solid about some sort of not voice, because this is obviously a different voice than what would have been coming before. But but do you think that's why this book is possible now, rather than your first book that's based on autobiography? Well, yeah, I mean,
6: the cliche is that your first book is, you know, drawn very directly from your personal experience. And I was so self-conscious when I started writing in the 90s, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do, like, the Gen X novel where, like, it opens with, like, Kurt Cobain's death and you're coming to grips and, like, you know, that sort of thing. Which is going on, which is sort of common in the the mid-90s. So I started off being more oddball and, you know, figuring out how to talk about race or technology and culture in different ways. So through elevator inspectors, that's weird, Uh, through John Henry (laughs) days. (laughs) uh, Yeah. So and now, you know, definitely I hated adolescence and I found it excruciating just to think about it. So it took 20 years to be able to uh, sort of process it and figure out what I could use from it that would serve a story, and then just technically, uh, whenever I tried a, a first-person voice for a full book, for a full book, it always ended up lapsing to my own voice. And so it took you know five books in to be able to have a first-person narrator for a three hundred something pages that was um, a character, not some version of you know, not not myself. If you know what I'm saying.
3: Yes, I do. So three hundred pages or so.
6: Well, how does it turn out? I mean, I guess when I handed <laughs> it in, it was like three. Three fifty. Now it's two seventy. But yeah,
3: yeah. That is so. So actually, there was a moment where, at some point, you realized it had like the character um, Ben Benji had morphed into not being th- some some cusp of you. Then. Well,
6: you know, I mean, if I could have used like more of myself, I mean, you know, my exper- experiences are in there. So I worked in an ice cream store for three summers. Uh, Big Olaf. B- Big Olaf. But I did not have like a racist incident with my boss and, and then try and sabotage like his freezers so I mean I did add, try to add something to my uninteresting life like I, my friends aren't that interesting and I'm not, I'm not interesting so I have to make up things that happened so the
3: way of the writer
6: yes the observer um, I mean I would love to do some sort of memoir where by the way you seem very interesting Colson thank you on radio you know you, people can't see me
3: And his (laughs) his boring hand gestures. (laughs)
6: Um, So, uh, um, oh yeah, um, you know, I I wanted to say basic character on my friend John, but each time John appeared, he would do something unJohn like because the overriding purpose is to serve the story, and so I'd have to change things, and so each time he appears or opens his mouth or walks onto the chapter, he's doing something unlike my friend because there's a higher purpose. And so, while, you know, when I was organizing the book, I thought, oh, and here's the, here's the you know, my friend, Billy. But um, it didn't work out that way.
3: And were, were people sort of those friends? Were they disappointed? Did they want to see more of, the, or do they see themselves in the book?
6: Well, you know, I mean, all those guys I hung out with, I haven't seen in a long time. Some of them still go out to Sag Harbor, but, or different times. You know, I'm only out there for three weeks. So... Um the book's been out you know for a few weeks and I haven't heard from them so we'll see what they think. We'll see.
3: <laughs> All right, well let's take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program Colson Whitehead. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got living writers here. And today on the program, Colson Whitehead. He's in town with his latest novel, Sag Harbor. Um, and, and a quick shout out. Thanks, Alex Bell Hodge, for, for engineering so nicely today, as always. Um, so, Colson. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Um, in in the New Yorker, I think when you like when you burst onto the scene, I think I don't have the date here, but John Updike uh, called you ambitious and, uh, and scintillating. That's very nice of him. <laughs> yeah. How does it feel to be scintillating?
6: Um. Uh. Well, you know, I mean, I think there's like, you know, my private self, which is ninety five percent, you know, in my house, walking around, working. That's where I work and live, and I'm just sort of. Uh, padding around in my dirty pajamas, surfing the web. Not trying to be scintillating. Not trying to be scintillating. And then, you know, then your book comes out and, and it's out into the world and people have responses to it and you talk about it. And sometimes you understand what they're saying. Sometimes you don't. But it's all very, you know, it's all very separate and external. Like there's no sort of – there's a real disconnect between what what comes out in uh, the press and, like, what is actually going on with the process and how you live every day, you know.
3: Yeah. So the so when the book is in the the world, in a marketing sense, like when it's out there, rather than when you just finish it or you've made the story, um, then that's a, that's a different part of you that's called upon to to be out there, sort of getting the word out. I like your YouTube clip, though. I thought that was
6: smart. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, you know, in the age of
3: It's a brief tour of uh, Sag Harbor. Colson walks you around, so you can check that out on YouTube if you want. Yeah,
6: my publisher was like, oh, the new thing is YouTube. And so they sent a a film crew out. Well, this one guy, and he maybe walked around and did like a four-minute video, Uh, which is interesting because, you know, my first book came out in 99, and I did some small videos like BarnesandNoble.com, and they were trying out different things, like weird, like, Promo videos, but at that point there was no common platform. So things were like Real Player or this was QuickTime, and that was a sort of you know became a, f- a sort of flop because just because you go Barnes and Noble doesn't mean you have Real Player and yada yada. And so you know I've been around. It's only been ten years, but it's been cool to see how the promo thing changes.
3: Well, because almost everyone has a website now, right? People so you, have websites,
6: you have to, yeah. and then like. Um, so it's a promo video and it seems new, but we were doing them 10 years ago. It's just now there's a common platform and so everyone can see them. You have to download something for 20 minutes on your modem in order to play it. And so it's, you know, it's a different, the same thing's going on, but it's a different time.
3: Is is it interesting to you as a writer? Do you ever look at the feedback? Because, you know, of course, with YouTube, for example, um, then there's of course all the comments and so to see what people yeah, I mean say or, you know That could seem poisonous after well. I mean or even the good or a bad way
6: No, but there's, yeah. there's YouTube comments. There's like blog comments, you know, there's comments on Amazon So you have to figure out like what you can handle because you get like some stinker And it's just there for like years I and mean, it's there forever frankly and what are you gonna do like, you know Have a flame war with some guy on Amazon or YouTube so you have to like Learn to keep your distance, and if you're going to be curious, be prepared that you know someone, someone's going to give you one star and say, you know, this guy's a joker.
3: Right, right. Um, but you're not. I'm not a joker. <laughs> yeah, not. Um, in fact, in the book, I was I was wondering going back to Sag Harbor, um, which in a little while we'll hear um, a, a piece from. Um, it's it's when you're you're in the book. At least my experience felt like it was in some ways like a very quiet book, but the things were were building. But it was a quiet. It's like a, a being there um, w- with these characters. Um, but I did notice there are moments where um, there's these allusions to um, maybe some of the friends, like a friend dying, or because when, for example, we've talked about the BB gun, that there's this um, episode in the book and and then there's um it kind of connects to that that um or it's hinted at that a couple of the friends don't come out you know much later on not that summer of 85 but um can you talk about that like was that conscious that um that element of i don't know and there's darkness with the family where there's there's the violence it feels like the undercurrent and uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit
6: sure i mean um uh, yeah, there's not a conventional plot, but there is sort of, you know, obviously forward movement. Um, some of it is seasonal, we're re- being pulled through the summer. And some of it is just, you know, getting more of, more of a full idea of who these people are, who the parents are. So the parents don't really appear that much until chapter five, and then we get a full on sort of dose in the, uh, I guess what I always called the barbecue from hell chapter. Um, so uh, um, the, I you know, was
3: surprised <laughs> that at the like when he finally when you know when Benji gets to eat some of it, I thought it would be different.
6: Right. Um, so, uh, uh, in terms of the BB, you know, the, the narrator is an adult looking back on his childhood, and and for me, I couldn't have done a fifteen year old voice for three hundred pages; I would have gone crazy. So, I needed an adult perspective, organizing his life and making this sort of raw material and shaping it, and having a sort of critical perspective uh, on it. And so he does have this knowledge of stuff that's after the summer, where people are going, and um, uh,
3: is that why with when somebody? Well, actually, no. callson Well, I wondered about because um, I was read that it said that there was um, someone had asked you about had you intended a young adult uh, category for it, and that that was one of those moments where you did respond to them because that sort of went out of proportion. It seemed to me that like where someone had said that you were upset by that, and and yeah. and i liked your rec- i would you like
6: well yeah i mean now you know it's like some completely random blogger was like colson white had got huffy when someone asked him if his book should be marketed as ya and then like another blogger who writes a lot about stuff on the on the on about books like can you care to comment and so it was like <laughs> you know a mini scandal about nothing and and, turned, and you know at the conference i was just like i don't do marketing i'm a writer you know you talk go to the marketing panel if you want to talk about marketing uh, i don't yeah, think about how thing about that end of things. Um, so, and
3: then they took that as sort of a rebuff or something that you thought there was something wrong with the YA or or. But I wondered when you were talking about the voice if that doesn't have something to do with it because it's not as if you're writing. Um, it's as if it's this fifteen-year-old voice that keeps. There's this uh, this other presence. Yeah, I mean, there. people
6: cheat. You know, they'll have like a, a pre- really precocious genius twelve-year-old narrator, and that's how they get around <laughs> the fact that the limited perspective and so it's a a precocious you know child prodigy who's narrating he's a 12 year old and narrating that's not you know uh most of us aren't prodigies when we're 15 we're just like numbskull teenagers and so i do want to talk about numbskullness but i don't want to have it uh, articulated in the words of a numbskull
3: (laughs) or be at the steering wheel of the book
6: yeah yeah so um there's that um
3: but the darkness of the family because i sort of took you away from from that like those
6: well yeah i mean that's just you know adding a new layer you know you have you set well, a baseline tension. and it's, it's tension you create a baseline of what the summer's about and then um each chapter i want to sort of ramp up the dysfunction a little bit that's what i was thinking and so it's you know two chapters of setup, and then we um we meet Benji, and then he does something in an ice cream parlor, and that's like one sort of twist on his character, because he's been a certain way for 100 pages, and then he does an action that perverts that. And the next chapter is the BB gun fight, which is a rehearsal for later kind of fights. I, I think I picked 85 because I was, I was a teen then, and I, I know it. Uh, but also, you know, the kids love pop culture, so the, the films and music they love are play a big part and hopefully can talk about larger things. And so 85... Uh, hip hop is still kind of corny. Uh, it has like, there are groups like UTFO who dress like the village people. They have characters and they're really corny. But five years later from that, from then you're going to have ice cube and NWA. And the music is commercialized, gangsterized, and these kids, um, and it's sort of the innocence of the music is gone in the same way that, that the boys who are 15 in 85 will be in their late teens and, uh, in a couple of years and it'll be young black men and targets and have a whole different uh, negotiation with the world and so the sort of but there's also
3: you have some of that negotiation in the, their lives right now because there's moments where and it's not like you're you know getting the two by four out by any means it's but it's like it's sort of chilling because it'll be because um, one of the friends will have a car like so he gets to be, you know, kind of big cheese and they all go with him in the car and but there's this idea of well You don't go too far because something uh, I wish I had the page actually, but um, because um Something you know, racial might happen yeah, you, don't and your you, don't know the, you don't know where the exits are or something. Yeah, where I you mean, just think oh. Yeah, I mean
6: there. you know, sag harbor Because
3: there's the beach community idea where you think well. Oh, no everything must be okay for everyone here because sometimes there's this illusion that class um, economics or something then changes some racial tension. Uh, I don't know.
6: Yeah. I, I know what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, just because it's in the Hamptons, it's not all rosy. I mean, what do you call a, um, a black man with a Ph.D.? The N word. I mean, it's like, you know, no matter what, you know, that's like an old joke from, from Malcolm okay. X. Um, <laughs> um, don't be shocked. Um, I know. Apparently, I'm whiter <laughs> than ever right now, right?
3: Oh, God. So,
6: so um, yeah, no, if, if they strayed, you know, if we strayed out of Sag Harbor and we didn't know what was up, we did have sort of paranoid fantasies. I mean, we are still targets in this mostly white. Um, uh, part of the island and if we do if we do end up going up the wrong street in Southampton, you know, the cops will follow us, you know, it's uh, so...
3: And uh, and there's a moment also, a subtle moment on the beach where like he's, because they can see the beach from the house and there's people who were tourists and um, obviously not residents, but then they came down and walking along the beach and then they realized that they were around people that didn't look like them, so they kind of turned around again, so...
6: Yeah, I I mean, you know, the, the... um, the folks in the book have their own beach and it's uh, it's all black, but, you know, this white tourist will stroll down and then suddenly they'll sort of realize, oh, you know, everyone's looking at me and turn back. And the same thing happens when the kids go to the white beach, the Southampton, Eastampton. Uh, they're the only black bodies on the beach and they realize that the same sort of scanning out from the uh, decks um, of the beach houses that they did on their black beach is happening to them, except there's white people... Watching them also, and so you know, you stray out of, stray out of your territory, and your subject becomes object, and object becomes subject.
3: I feel like I keep taking you away, also from that aspect. You said so each chapter, like things are becoming slightly more ramped up, um, or, or or dysfunctional, even. And um,
6: well, and- I, I, I mean, like you, you know, you, you create effects by ju- juxtaposition, and so if you have, um. Uh, a childhood caper which has elements of, of <laughs> childhood
3: caper. That's great.
6: Of of the sinister, and then um, you sort of expand upon that sort of darkness in the next chapter, and then you know you have the, the caper where they try to get into the the club, and so you have a really dark chapter, and then you juxtapose it with a more sort of light um, chapter, and I, I think and I think that. Um, evokes the dissociation that's going on because like you know benji is sort of aware of what's going on with his family but not totally and he's sort of in denial of like his family dysfunction and so in the same way that that kind of personality retreats into ignoring what's going on the book is sort of ignoring the darkness of the the dysfunction of the family and going into this sort of more lighter thing about uh getting into a club and trying to see lisa Mm -hmm. lisa and Mm -hmm. um grandma and utfo and so you know you know hopefully you know i'm Manipulating the, the the reader's mood, you know, and that's my way of moving us forward and, and changing up the rules of the book from chapter to chapter, if that makes sense.
3: It does, but it does seem like that, that, um, that, that, that the voice or the perspective of, um, is aware of, of that level of, um, I don't know, like something that's just, uh, Almost like like with the interactions with the mom and dad, where and then the uh, Reggie finds the a note that the mother has sketched out, like yells at me in front of my friends, or these things. Like you just think, oh, you know, there's m- so much.
6: And they're not, they're not really commented on. I mean,
3: or that the sister is not there because yeah. she doesn't m- want to be there, not just because it's too bougie or
6: <laughs> bougie bougie.
3: <laughs> Okay, well, let's take a short break, and I'll have some elocution lessons here. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Colson Whitehead and his novel, Sag Harbor, will be back.
4: Yo, EMD. Yeah, what's up, man? Oh, that girl they call Roxanne, she's all stuck up. Why you say that? But you wouldn't give a guy like me no rap. but she was walking down the street, so I said, hello though. I can't go from your TFO. And she's so, I said, So, oh, baby, don't you know I can sing rap dancing just one show? Cause I can't go, Mr. Sophisticator. As far as I know, ain't nobody greater from beginning to end and to beginning. I never do because I'm all about skinning, but if I was to lose, I wouldn't be exact Cause I'm not a gambler, I don't bet I don't be in no casino Baby, play you nizzo, the is-i-is, the gris-a-kiss-a-a-n-gis-o i is the Grizzly a kiss I, ain't I thought you'd be impressed and give me devious rap I thought I had a book inside my sentence to track I thought it'd be a piece of paper, there was nothing like that I guess that's what I keep a thinking, ain't that right, black I thought I had it in the palm of my hand But man, oh man,
1: if I was red, I'd bang, rock sand Rock You understand? I said, I said I
4: wanna be your man Yo, Kango, I don't think that you're dense But you went about the matter with no experience You should know She doesn't need a guy like you, she needs a guy like me With a high IQ And she'll take to my rap, cause my rap's the best The educated rapper FD will never fess so when I met her, I wasted no time. But stuck up Roxanne, paid baby no mind. She thought my name was Barry. I told her it was Gabby. She said she didn't like it, so she chose to call me Baby. She said she loved to marry, my baby she would carry. And if we had a baby, we name's the baby Harry. Her mother's name is Mary, which is really quite contrary. Her face is very hairy, and you can say it's scary. She doesn't, a our father's a fairy. It's like a secondary, it's, un- it's a similarary Back in January, or was in February. But every time I say this, from, I it makes me kind of weary. It's only customary. To get this to me. Right back into
3: there. Welcome back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Colson Whitehead. Um, reading from Sag Harbor very soon.
6: Yeah, you can, you, you can say M O F O, right? Like mofo? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say the real, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, syllables, so. yeah. That seems fine. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Excellent. (laughs) Not that. I was going to say, we should have sign language. And I was like, well, we do, I guess. (laughs) Yeah,
6: there's a review on Amazon. It's like, I like the book, but it's a little rough on the language. But I guess, you know, in terms of, like, the profanity, because, like, they curse a lot, the kids. Yeah. And so there's a lot of profanity. So I guess there's, like, some, you know older person who did that's
3: like. true I was like I think I must hang out with hooligans <laughs> then. I was like what really
6: yeah it's, just, I mean, it's a standard seven words you can't say on tv but
3: <laughs> right, right.
6: On, on radio yeah
3: <laughs> okay well um well let's see well yeah so Sag Harbor you're in the we should mention that you're here in town for book fest yes Colson and and tomorrow well
6: and is there tonight?
3: It, no, or is it airing right it's now? we're on Wednesdays. No, I wish I wish it was live. That would be great. But it's Wednesdays, so we're in a time warp right. here.
6: But, so um, I was in town, yeah. And Although I get yeah.
3: <laughs> now we're completely confused. Where are we? Who are
6: we? <laughs> yeah, the Book Fest. I'm excited. It should be fun. Yes. And today today was the writers' conference. So I did a talk um, about the writer's craft.
3: Ah the crafty writers. Yes. <laughs> It's, um, I like that you had a, a title of an essay that was, wow, fiction works.
6: Well, yeah, I mean, I, um, because I get invited to do like serious craft talks at colleges and stuff, but I have nothing to say. So I make fake, I do fake lectures, making fun of the idea of writing. Or not taking it as seriously. So whenever I do a, a, a talk about writing, it's like a it's like a parody. So how to write? How to write a memoir? You know what is a poem?
3: I liked your how to read paragraph too. That was good.
6: Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, uh, the close reading. Like we you know how to read. I mean, I'm reading this, so obviously you can't. Yeah. So.
3: But you said your formative, your intellectual coming of age was at Oxford.
6: Oh well, that was a character. Oh, 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 oh gross. Then,
3: nice. Be careful when you look at things <laughs> in pieces.
6: <laughs> yeah, that, that that piece was sort of making fun of um, certain critics who are very leery of postmodernism and to you know the um, the Zadie Smiths, the Jonathan Franzen's of the world, who are uh, you know it was a James Wood parody. Uh, so oh. that's so.
3: That's so. That's a so. That's an example. Of an example what, of my what you're fake up to. craft. Yeah, okay. my fake
6: craft talks. Yeah,
3: and um and how and then is there a question session afterwards
6: or, or yes? And then, then I'm even... then I'm serious. You know. And then, okay. Yeah.
3: <laughs> that must be pretty good. You're almost like the um, Stephen Colbert of <laughs> of the craft talks. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's
6: yeah. I mean, I think sometimes people get upset or that you know they take notes for the first two minutes and they're like, oh man, and then they get into it. You know. Um, <laughs>
3: Well, that, can we hear a bit of Sag Harbor then? Surely, that, surely.
6: Okay. So, I mean, it's self-explanatory. Um, 19, um, I picked '85, and then I, 1985 was the setting, and I had to figure out what would work in the book. And so it turns out that um, this horrible event happened. And here we go. A few weeks earlier, the Coca-Cola Company had discontinued their signature cola. They'd lost market share to Pepsi. Diet Coke, the sister brand, had been too successful, luring away consumers with the promise of thinner thighs, a figure more in line with that aerobicized you. The higher-ups hit upon a catastrophic solution. They decided to replace the most famous drink in the world with an imposter. I'd been addicted to Coke for years, with a two or three can a day habit since the fifth grade, starting around the same time my schoolmates started stealing. Shoplifting, now that I think about it. When my sister told me not to be so hyper, or my parents told me to knock it off, I vibrated with, vibrated with the strain of keeping still and wondered why nature had cursed me so. It wasn't until I was in high school that I learned what caffeine was. My love for Coke went beyond mere buzz, however. How could one not be charmed by the effervescent joviality of a tall glass of the stuff, the manic activity, activity of the bubbles, popping, reforming, popping anew, sliding up the inside of the glass to freedom as if the beverage were miraculously caffeinated on itself? That tart first sip, preferably with the ice knocking against the lips with a, for an added sensory flourish, That stunned the brain into total recall of pleasure, all the cokes consumed before, and all those impending cokes, the long line of satisfaction underpinning a life. What forgiveness for the supreme disappointment of a fountain Coke that, that turned out to be fizzless and dead, or a lukewarm Coke that had been sitting for a while, falling away from its ideal temperature of 46.5 degrees Fahrenheit slash 8 degrees Celsius. All the bubbles fled so that it, so that it had become a useless mud of sugar, which is what new Coke tasted like, actually. I remember when I first heard they were changing the formula— April 23rd, 1985. It was dinner time and I'd wandered into the living room to ask my mother a question. I can't remember what it was as it was erased by the terrible information. I walked in just in time to hear the newscaster say, A surprising announcement about an American classic. And somehow I knew. I stayed through the commercial break and watched as Roberto Gozietta, the CEO of Coca-Cola, cheered the end of the world. It was inconceivable, like tampering with the laws of nature. Hey, let's try gravity-free Tuesdays. Buckle up, mofos. From this day on, water is incredibly flammable. Let's see how that goes. I slunk back into my room, dizzy and confused. It was as if someone had popped the top of the world and let all the air out. Within days, I'd cornered the market the local market on old coke in a grid defined by 106 to the north, 96th street to the south, and from amsterdam to the river, buying up what i could from the corner bodegas, the increasingly slick delis popping up on broadway, and the assorted stationery stores of the hood. by the time new coke started to appear, started to appear a few days after the announcement, i was well prepared with a huge stash in my closet, a prayer against doomsday. I had no dreams of profiteering, of selling my stock at a dear price to aficionados when the day came when the people of Earth discovered the treasure they destroyed, as if the cola were an exquisite lizard or a spiny bivalve driven to extinction in a race's savage drive to ruin. No. No. I wanted it all to myself, like an art thief who steals new descending a staircase or some key Picasso and hangs it on the wall of his own private gallery for his wicked and ingrown pleasure, at peace with the fact that the world is unaware of his activities, and perhaps that is actually the point of the entire exercise, although such a sentiment is probably not too surprising coming from a boy whose main recreation was masturbation.
3: Thank you, Coulson. <laughs> um, that's great about the Coke. I don't think I've ever. I I don't think I've ever heard anyone r- write about it, and that was just right on. I know we- I love Coke. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell it comes through.
6: <laughs> well, yeah, you got to write what you know. So. Right,
3: exactly. For it to be authentic, yes, <laughs> to me. Um, so yeah, so that's one of the very real parts of the book. Um, so. So is it always that um, you're, um, in your other, other writing, are you also always using, because there's so much humor in that too, such an attention to this minute detail. And then, um, and, and I don't know with that voice, it just, it seemed like such a great you just start to like that was one of the moments where i just really loved the main character where i just thought these obsessions and like almost a vulnerability and and then what this leads to is like his one of his first big slip-ups right so
6: i think you know his voice i mean i generally like to um have some sort of form of humor in my books and this voice definitely accommodates a lot of different types of humor um the silliness about the message by Grandmaster Flash, or like, you know, this, these sort of comic assigns. Um, so, you know, with, with this narrator, I was able to let it rip. With a book like The Intuitionist, where I am mostly playing it straight and the main character is very sort of repressed, and um, it's a fake detective novel, so the language, the sentences are very clipped, I couldn't have, I couldn't sort of, I can't have this sort of broad humor and where there is humor it's deadpan you know it's making fun of the premise that there are elevator inspectors who are important and have like beats and like right around like cops so the humor is different but that's a very important component of how i see the world and you know and how I, you know construct uh, my narratives um, in terms of like you know that close zoom in yeah i mean that's like a feature of my writing just like get, getting uh, no matter what it is, like the sort of insane close-up on 46.
3: things. 46.7 degrees or, or for the, right, how yeah. cold the coke is. And,
6: um, yeah. Making it real and zooming in um, as close as I can uh, without sort of destroying the illusion. But having um, a lot of fun with breaking something down and figuring out how it works...
3: And so I think it's it's it is actually funny that because I asked Coulson to read this part, so he humored me. Thank you. Um, but it's funny that I was w- wanting us to talk about sort of the darker elements, like some of the the pathos or the the tension, and then I kind of <laughs> give us this comedic interlude. Um, so, how, was it was it harder to write this these moments in this book because there weren't maybe the you know the those, even if it's not like the you know like those moments with the elevators where it's you're making these things up and they're important on their beats and was this a, yeah was it I guess, hmm, is it was it harder or easier I don't mean that what a what a terrible no, yeah, question they're always
6: but, hard they're always hard no, in different it, ways and so with the intuitionist I was learning how to write uh, a linear narrative with John Henry days I was trying to figure out how to do a book with a lot of with a decentralized character and sort of structure and with this i was trying to figure out how to make these mundane moments into an interesting story and so each what, book each has its own problems you got to figure out
3: but what just surprised you about the writing of this book that you couldn't have anticipated because it's sort of something you felt like you could do it now you were, were ready to risk like this at least like a, a setting of adolescence
1: mm-hmm.
3: and well you know, so what surprised you
6: whether or not um uh, these disclosures are true, you know, Benji's, Benji's emotional disclosures or psychological disclosures are true to my life or not. I did have, to, I do have to dig deep in order to get him out there. And so um, I decided early on that I was going to be just like do the full Monty. And even though it's going to be incredibly draining and excruciating, you know, describe what it is to be a horribly awkward teenager. Describe, you know, trying to make out with somebody, describe, you know, some horrible parental dysfunction that you're embroiled in and can't escape. And so once I committed to doing it and doing it the best way I could, um, uh, you know, that was like the challenge and it was also fun and it was, you know, exhilarating and it was very different than, you know, some, I mean, I've had moments like that in other parts of my book where I'm doing, getting to some sort of emotional chapter that evokes you know, in a response to me as like a writer and as a person, and it happened a lot more with this book.
3: Sort of revelations, then, <laughs> yeah. in some way.
6: <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you
3: yeah. know what? We'll take a break and we'll come sure. back. We'll come back for more revelations from Colson Whitehead, um, his novel, Sag Harbor. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers. We'll be back soon. <laughs>
5: You start to become
3: Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Colson Whitehead and with his novel Sag Harbor, and uh, that was that was Smith.
6: Yes, the Smiths, the lovely Smiths,
3: and and uh, the eighties. <laughs> you were you were denigrating the eighties on on the YouTube clip where you I think where you were saying maybe the seventies possibly could be worse. But or. yeah, I
6: mean, I, I mean, think about it. Like, what was worse, the seventies or the eighties? Uh, they're they're both sort of atrocious uh, to different degrees.
3: But but yet we circle back to to honor them, like you know, especially in LA where the the they flash back to eighties fashion. Kind of regularly now, (laughs) like every few years it seems. Whenever like
6: in college, like the Artie dorm had like an eighties party like on January